What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Two Feet on the Ground Gravity Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Chris. Thank you for choosing to tune in today. Hey, folks, today you're in for a treat. It's going to be a little bit different than normal, at least when it comes to the genre of this episode. This would fall under the true crime genre, and I'm just excited about the guest that was willing to come on today. Folks, I don't know if you've seen on Netflix, one of the new releases is a movie called The Good Nurse, and it tells the story of a nurse, Amy Loughran, who had to make a really tough decision when she was confronted with evidence that one of her co-workers, Charlie Cullen, was killing patients. And Amy is going to be on this episode today. At the time, she was a 16-year veteran, single mom raising two girls, and she had her own health issues, and just a lot of things going on. But when patients started dying and police detectives started investigating, Amy was confronted with evidence that she just couldn't turn away from. She realized that that ultimately patients' lives were going to be at stake if she didn't speak up and do the right thing. Uh, just a gripping story, folks, both the movie and this interview today. It's going to be well worth your time. But before we get into that, uh, you know I want to talk about an organization, folks. I want to talk about Service Peace Warriors. Service Peace Warriors is a 501c3 nonprofit that's dedicated to taking care of our nation's heroes. That's right, our military veterans that are returning with injuries, whether they be mental health injuries or physical injuries, Service Peace Warriors has their back. They're raising all the funds. They're training both the service animal and the veteran with 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 having a service animal and they're doing it again at no cost to the veteran but service peace warriors wanted to take it another step they wanted to equip first responders with service animals as well so they started maddox dog training academy a for-profit business and they use the proceeds from maddox to train service animals and equip those with first responders totally worth your while check them out today servicepeacewarriors.org folks with that Let's get into this interview with Amy Lochran. Amy Lochran, welcome to the Gravity Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Hey, I am just so excited, so appreciative of you. Some random dude on Facebook reaches out and says, I have a podcast. Can I interview you? I was I was really drawn to you, and I say you, not just uh, the the character Jess, Jessica Chastain who's playing you in mm-hmm. The Good Nurse, but I was drawn to you both uh, in in the movie, but then also in the documentary when you're being interviewed, and I'm excited to get to your story, but some people listening may have no clue. Either one, they're living under a rock, two, they don't have Netflix, or three, they've just been trying to take a, Netf- a Netflix uh, a diet for a while, you know, because they were... Netflix and chilling too much. So uh, just in case people don't know about The Good Nurse, can you go ahead and kind of set the stage who you are and what was going on back in 2003? Well, in 2003, I was um, a I was an ICU nurse, uh, an ICU trauma trained nurse, a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. I was divorced with two daughters and I had the best co-worker of my entire life who ended up being fired. And I was really pissed off because in the year and a half that we worked together, he and I had formed this bond that I had never had with another nurse. And he was my work husband There was never any boy-girl stuff going on, but we were definitely the best of friends. And I think that that we were the best of friends because there wasn't any boy-girl stuff going on. And after he was fired, police started showing up at the hospital. So that's where I will jump in. Yeah. So we're talking about Charlie Cullen. He's he's this best friend of yours, co-worker that's at least in the movie, it portrays him as really helping you out. I mean, again, you're a single mom. I'm working as an ICU nurse. Tell me about this. I mean, this has to be a stressful job. I'm a police officer by trade. And from what I hear, when it comes to first responders and emergency room and ICU medical staff, we we have a lot in common. 
We do. It's interesting because I trained as a trauma ER nurse before I became an ICU nurse. And as an ICU nurse, I was I was always the code leader when I was on because I had so much ER training and we had a lot of codes when Charlie Cullen was around. And so he and I ended up coding quite a few patients together. And in fact, it could be sometimes two and three people, two and three patients that we were coding each night, which was much higher than I had ever, ever coded in any profession. Yeah. And, and you also had some medical issues going on at this time. Is that right? I did. Um, in the beginning of 2003, I had finally been diagnosed. Uh, actually, I had been misdiagnosed for almost 10 years with electrical cardiomyopathy. When the diagnosis came in, it was a deadly diagnosis. I knew what it meant, and I knew that if we couldn't get it under control, the only other really resolve for that would be a heart transplant. Oh, wow. And, and did you, at least in the movie, it kind of portrays it almost like you didn't have good medical insurance. Is, was that true? Or at least that's what I was picking up in the movie was that you weren't able to get some of the treatment that, that you needed for this condition. So it was really interesting the way that Christy Wilson Cairns, who was the screenplay writer, wrote that in. And I'm actually glad she wrote it in that I didn't have health insurance because it made more sense to the masses rather than just how messy and complicated it was. I did have health insurance. However, when I was working at Somerset Medical Center, I was a travel nurse. And as a travel nurse, if I took off, uh, I, I can't remember the exact amount. I believe that if I missed six shifts in a row, I would not only lose my contract, I would have to pay back what the contract had paid me and I would lose my health insurance. So I couldn't even take the time off to receive the medical treatment that I needed. And I just kept getting sicker and sicker. I was working 12 and 16 hour shifts. And anyone else with cardiomyopathy would have to be on disability. And I couldn't afford that. Well, that makes a whole lot more sense than them explaining that, what you just explained, just saying. Yeah, and it is, it is a very messy, it's, it's a messy way that the United States has their health insurance, but it was even messier being a travel nurse. Yeah. Wow. So this is, this is a piece of this relationship because Charlie was an amazing friend, right? I mean, he's helping you both at work. It looked like he was a great coworker, meaning he's. I mean, at my work, I want to work with those people that step up, right? That work with me. Yes. Sometimes they carry my load. Sometimes I carry their load, but we're in this together. And that was what I saw with Charlie Cullen. And that was all true. Charlie and I, it was, it was very interesting to watch. And I've only emotionally been able to watch the movie all the way through once. It was interesting to watch that relationship unfold in front of me because what they did show was how close we were, although Charlie and I were actually closer. We, um, we shared everything. We did not, however, have a relationship outside of the hospital. And I'm glad that Christy Wilson Cairns and Tobias Lindholm, the director, left that in, that he was part of my life outside of the hospital because it's the only way that the audience would be able to understand how close we had become. Because as you know, sometimes your coworkers are your best friends. Sometimes they're your only social life because when you're home, you can be with your family, but there's times when you only see your coworkers through it, especially when you're doing shift work. If you're working night shift, you sleep during the day and then you go right back to work. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, completely. Yeah. There's times my wife and I were just reflecting. We were 
recording a Marriage Monday version here of the podcast yesterday, and we were talking about times of part. And for a while there, she's working day shift as a school teacher. I'm working this night shift to where literally we don't see each other for uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And the only reason we see each other on Friday is I keep burning five hours of time so I can come home early so I can see my wife before yeah. we go to bed. Otherwise, I wouldn't see her until midday Saturday. And it's it's tough when you're doing that, uh, that yes. tap out. Yes. Right? So, yes. so Charlie Cullen gets fired. Now, this is a shock to you. Am I right? It's not only a shock, it sent shock waves through the entire ICU because he's everyone's favorite nurse. And if someone like Charlie can be fired, we can all be fired. If they can find a reason to fire him for whatever we couldn't, we just couldn't understand it. So now we're all paranoid. Like, okay, if they're after him and they found something from this perfect nurse, then what are they going to find with us? Also, he was one, he was the only person at that time that knew how sick I was. And he was helping me behind the scenes. He was helping me with my patients. Sometimes I would just be too exhausted to even focus in the morning to be able to do my paperwork because I was falling asleep because of my medications. And he was always there to help me. Wow. So that's where you kind of left off with that intro. He gets fired. You've had, you've, I mean, you're getting sometimes two codes a night where patients are coding on you guys, which is, is not normal. And now, all, no. now all of a sudden they bring in police detectives. They bring in Danny Baldwin and Tim uh, Braun and there's these cops here. What, what, what was going on? What did the hospital tell you? And, and, and what were some of the things that took place? I really thought from my, from my own thoughts, uh, not that anyone said to this, I could only imagine it was probably something to do with narcotics. Why else would police show up? No one goes to, okay, there's police here. Someone has been murdered. And especially in the ICU, people are dying all the time. You're not thinking something sinister like that. You're thinking narcotics. So automatically, I believed it was a witch hunt and that somehow Charlie had gotten wrapped up in someone framing him or I couldn't even imagine. I just knew that my friend Charlie couldn't have anything to do with narcotics. And then there were a few people that started to ask questions of me and wondering if I had heard anything about someone insinuating that Charlie may have given an overdose of insulin. And I blew that off. I said, there's no way they're asking about that. And unfortunately, it was a lot worse than that. Yeah. In the movie, it portrays you reaching out to someone that you know that previously worked with Charlie at another hospital. Was that an accurate event that took place, you meeting with this person in a diner? No, actually, when I found out that Charlie had, well, when I saw the evidence, Danny Baldwin showed me the evidence behind the scenes. I really didn't, I didn't want to believe it. I did not want to believe that there was something really that sinister going on. So they did capture that in the film. And again, Christy did a fantastic job of finding a way to capture that belief system in the film. And I, I did not talk to anyone about it. I did not talk to my best friend uh, that worked with me and Charlie. Um, There was another nurse there, Donna Hargreaves, who actually was much closer to Charlie than I was. The three of us, they called us the three musketeers. And initially, I started to share things with Donna. I just did not want to involve her. And I also, not only did I want to protect her because she was a very young, very inexperienced nurse, I also was at that point, I just didn't know who I could trust. Yeah. And I, I could only imagine the fear. Again, you guys are in belief that, hey, they're, they're, they're on a witch hunt here, right? I mean, they're, they're going after 
the crown prince. They're going after the person that, that, that is a perfect, amazing human being, great nurse. And so I can only imagine just that, that, that culture of distrust that is in the air. So I jumped ahead there. Let's get back to that, that interview. So all of the, if I understand correctly, all the ICU staff are being interviewed by the police detectives, but the hospital insists that one of their representatives are going to be there in the room during these interviews. Is that correct? Yes, which was total bullshit because they knew that if one of the representatives were, if they were going to be there in the room, no one was going to say anything about what actually happens behind the scenes. No one. And I was the last nurse to be interviewed. Danny Baldwin, who is the lead detective, said, he, no one was allowed to speak to me except for him. He wanted to take control of that. He had heard that I was kind of a little bit of a spitfire and he knew he was going to have his hands full with me. And I did not disappoint because I came in the room with guns blazing and I didn't care that my hospital representative was there. I just said, this is bullshit. And I think I said bullshit a lot. And uh, he thought that was great. Well, I didn't think that he thought it was great at the moment, but I did find out later on how great he thought it was that I was actually coming at him. I was also the only person who had talked to Charles Cullen, my friend Charlie. I was the only person to have a conversation with him after he left the hospital. So Danny really did see that as being a good in uh, possibly of being able to find out at least what his movements were. He wanted to talk to me more in depth. And luckily my representative, Mary Lund, was called out of the room. And Danny was smart enough to take that opportunity to show me some evidence. And it was evidence he could not read he could not understand. He knew that there was something there. He just couldn't see it. And it was the medication dispensing printouts. It's our Pixis system. There's many systems now that are like the Pixis. At that time, it was only Pixis. And it's a cash register essentially for medications. And he showed me Charlie's transactions. And when I saw those transactions, there were several of them that were absolutely astounding to me. I, I went into panic mode because I could see what he was doing. I could see what he was, uh, the way that he was manipulating the Pixis and the way that his transactions were um, canceling certain medications other medications. I, I, I also knew the way that he was always around the Pixis. No one else would have known that. No one else would have paid attention to that. But I saw, for the most part, several transactions that there would be no explanation for. So here's my fear. If the hospital also saw those transactions, and hadn't done anything about it and hadn't questioned him about it, we had a real problem. And what was worse is what if they hadn't seen it? And that also meant that we were in a load of shit right there because if the hospital wasn't paying attention to what he was doing and I could see absolutely see that there was something seriously wrong there wasn't a good answer there just was not a good answer for any of those scenarios wow amy at this point you you have a tough decision to make you have a really tough decision to make you are a mom of two girls and you're there's this fear amongst your coworkers. Maybe, maybe the hospital's going to fire more people. You're in a traveling nurse status. What happens if you get fired and you can't work with your medical condition? What happens? Yeah. If, what happens if you tell what you know and it pisses Charlie off and then the cops can't 
can't do the rest of the process and he gets out. There are so many different things that, that have to be swirling through your mind and you made a decision. You had a character moment here and you reached out to the police or they reached out to you after that initial interview and you guys connected again. Is that correct? Yeah. They, um, Danny never told me to keep it a secret. Danny did not give me any direction to keep this from the hospital. It was just, I knew something wasn't right. And the way that Danny looked at me in that moment, he also understood that I understood something was really wrong. And so he then without the hospital's knowledge, uh, he reached out to me and he and Tim Braun, the other detective on the case came to my home and brought a whole bunch of evidence. And when they brought that evidence to me, I also, at that time, I was asking the right questions. And those questions, the answer was that the hospital had not provided them with the proper evidence. The hospital not only didn't provide it, they were hiding it. And we both, well, three of us realized that during that meeting. And it was then I realized I had a huge decision to make. Do I trust the detectives? Do I move forward and stay behind the scenes and work against the hospital, against my best friend, put my health at risk and my career? It was it was a really, really awful crossroads in my life. And I cannot tell you that it was easy. I cannot tell you that it was just like, well, of course I'm going to help the detectives. It wasn't like that at all. It was, you know, I still get emotional about it because it affected my life so dramatically. And yet I knew how my moral compass was. And I also knew that if this really was true, that I may need a heart transplant and that I may very well be at the end of my life. If I didn't do this, I was being offered an opportunity that could be something that could save lives and I didn't do it. I was going against everything that I am. Yeah. So it didn't make it easy, but it was pretty clear what I had to do. Well, I'm just telling you the the courage that I I mean, I've only known you from watching a movie and a documentary, but the courage that I that I've seen in that decision you made is is huge. As a police detective, when I wor- was working cases, uh, specifically, I, I was a child crime detective for two years, and then after that, I worked uh, property crime, and and I was dependent on courageous people doing really really tough things, and I couldn't always promise them that it was all going to be okay. I couldn't yeah. always promise them that, hey, if you tell me what happened, I'm going to be able to get justice for you. I couldn't promise it, but I needed them to do it. I needed them to do yeah. it so that I could do my job in piecing together the evidence and then giving that to a prosecutor and hopefully a judge and jury for them to do their job. But but police officers, detectives, they they we have to have people of courage and people of character that are willing to step up and do really, really tough things, sometimes at the risk of their own safety and and success but to ultimately to save lives or to hold people accountable so i thought it was remarkable watching that now even when you're at your house during this interview mary lund calls from the hospital it's like there's a fly on the wall yeah mary lund calls and essentially is trying to scare me away from talking to the detectives she was calling to make certain that the detectives had not reached out to me. And here are these two huge guys that, you know, I've got like the landline phone and I've got one huge guy on one side and one huge guy on the other. We're all listening on this landline phone and they're like, see, 
this is what we're talking about. Like, this is what we're up against. And I said, well, you're not going to do it alone. You're just, you're not going to do this alone. You're not. Well, but and then I did, I did, I did still have to talk to my daughter about it though. Yeah. And, and your daughter was pretty young at the time, the daughter that you ended up talking with about it, right? I mean, how old was she? She was 11 at the time and I was directing her sixth grade play and she was so incredibly shy and her life had changed because of all of this. There were all of these kids that were at our house and she had really kind of come into her own and I had to say to her, we don't know how this is going to go. There is a possibility that people will think that maybe I am part of this, that maybe I was helping a serial killer and I will never be able to tell anyone that I was actually helping the detectives. It would have to be a complete secret. And she just had the moral compass that she still has that. She definitely had a more developed moral compass than any of those bureaucrats in the hospital. And she said, he might be murdering people. Of course we're going to do this. She said, I don't, I don't care about my social life. I don't care. We, if we have to move, if we have to change our names, whatever we have to do, we, we need to do this. Yeah. I love it when kids don't get confused by dollars and cents and right. Yes. Liability yes. and risk. And there's a right thing to do yes. and there's a wrong thing to do. And right yeah. now this is very yeah. clear. So I mean, this, it's one thing if you're telling the story, Amy, if, if, if all you're doing is just helping them translate documents, I mean, I'm not saying that that's easy, that that takes courage, but you agree to meet with Charlie. You agree to let them put a wire on you and to try to record this conversation. Tell me about the lead up to this and then it taking place. It was pretty rough because we were recording a lot of our conversations over the phone and I just wasn't getting anywhere with it. And then I reached out to Charlie. I it's, it's tough because my memory is very skewed because I've, seen now I've seen the documentary so I know behind the scenes things I also have read Charles Graber's book now which before I hadn't because I didn't want that to mess up my my own memory so I don't know if I remember this correctly so anyway I I what I understand is that I called Charlie I think I was having some guilt about everything that was happening and I just wanted to talk to him And so I called him and he called me back and he was so excited because he had gotten a job and I was terrified. He was supposed to be starting work very soon. And I called Tim Braun and I said, I, I don't know what we're going to do, but he's, he's got another job. And I had no idea how far along this, this, investigation had gotten. I didn't know how much evidence they had. I didn't know what we were going to do from there. Even though I was part of the team, I'm very, very glad they didn't tell me what was happening because I am, I'm fortunate enough to have been naive in the way that I approached Charlie. And also I then felt that same pressure that if I did not get a confession from him, that he was going to walk. Mm. I don't know if that was going to happen. It's a possibility. I just know that that's the way that I felt. That's what I knew at the time. And that's how much pressure was on me is that he was going to walk if it wasn't for me. And so, yes, they asked me if I could go in and wear a wire and try and get a confession out of him, which I did wear a wire. We met for a few hours in a sports bar and I was able to get a an incomplete confession out of him and the wire malfunctioned. 
Of course it did. Murphy's going to show up, Cell right? wire <laughs> malfunction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, so, so that the part where he gave it admi- uh, a partial confession and admission d- wasn't on the recording. Is that correct? So there was no way for them to decipher what was on the recording. There was just no way. And they did arrest him right after that meeting with Charlie. And they put him in a cell and they did whatever detectives do. They put him in the interrogation room. That's a really weird word, but it's true. They interrogated him for a couple of days. I, however, didn't know that the wire had malfunctioned and I thought they arrested him and it was all over. It was done. I wasn't going to have to worry about this ever again. It's over. No one's going to know about me. And it's done. It's over. So you had this moment of exhale, this this moment of, okay, everything's safe. Everything's fine. Yeah. I've prevented him from, from getting yes. hired at this new job. And now all of a sudden, how do you find out that they they it's not totally over? They need your help again. So I was at work two days later and Tim Braun called me at work and asked me if I would be willing to go in and talk to Charlie because he said that it was an incomplete, it would, it would, it would be my word against his essentially. And they did not want to drag me into that. And they had come up with a plan for me to go in and talk to him and see if we can put that syringe right in his hand and see if we can get him to actually confess. So that's what I did. They brought him into into an area where they do interrogations, and I talked to him for quite some time, and I was able to get him to confess. Now, was this in a recorded area to where it isn't just your word versus his? I assume that this was a recorded piece to where it was captured. Yes, there, it was a recorded piece and we were also on camera. Okay. Wow. Yeah. The movie doesn't do that justice because the movie made it look like you're in there for like three minutes. I'm like, dang girl, I need to learn from you about how to interview and interrogate people. I'm going to fly you up here to Washington state. You can train police officers. Yeah, yeah. No, it was uh, it was quite a few hours. That the initial one was quite a few hours, and the second one, I was so determined. I at that point, I would have essentially done anything to get that confession out of him because I was at I was at that level of truly understanding what a monster he was. I was finally accepting the fact that he was not a mercy killer. Up until that point, I wanted to be in denial. I wanted so badly to believe that he was a mercy killer. And I just, I just, did that shift. It was finally that shift, that paradigm shift of this person has not only murdered people, but he also used you and your coworkers to also harm patients. And I didn't realize how deep it went. I just knew enough that I wanted justice. I wanted justice. Yeah. I mean, I, I assume you fall in love with some of your patients. I mean, you, you feel responsible for them. I know I feel responsible when I go out and work as a police officer. I feel responsible for this community. And when people call for help and I show up, I feel responsible to take care of these folks, to make scenes safe and to deescalate yeah. events and investigate them thoroughly. And the times that something yeah. doesn't go right, it I struggle with that even more so. Uh, yeah. If I saw someone else, you know, doing something evil and, and, and hurting them, what has this, I mean, this was 19 years ago, 19 years ago. Yeah. How does this impact you today? Well, I didn't talk about it for so many years <laughs> and now I'm able to, 
I think for me, the biggest impact was the deep, deep spiritual quest I went on after all of this happened. I really wanted to get to the heart of why I did not see a monster right in front of me. Why was I so drawn to someone that was so dark and had so much mental illness? Why was I the person who ended up being his best friend? Not just the fact that he was my best friend, I was his best friend. And for that to have occurred, there had to have been something within me. And I decided I needed those answers. And those answers were only going to come from a spiritual quest. And I did get those answers. These days, I am so much more open. I'm so much more vulnerable. I am, I have so much more really just integrity even though back then you would think that because I was doing those things that there was there was something within me that had integrity but I was also not honest with my my feelings or honest with my emotions toward him I was not honest with my coworkers about how sick I was and I wouldn't do that now I wouldn't do that to a coworker. I wouldn't do that to a team. I have so much more confidence in that now. And I trust people more. I feel that it was a superpower that I had, how I only saw the good in Charlie. I did not see that deep, dark part of him. I only saw what he really wanted to show me. Yeah. It may have been a mask. However, he's behind bars because he trusted me, because we got that close, yeah. because we were able to be friends, and because he wanted so badly to connect with someone that that connection ultimately saved him from killing people. Yeah. I, I'm I'm kind of amazed by something you just said there, because you said you trust more now. Whereas I'm almost thinking that that you you not seeing the evil could cause you to be really jaded to where I don't trust anyone ever again, right? So help me understand that a little bit uh, of of that kind of where you're at now and and how this didn't totally jade you to where I'm not going to trust another human being ever again in my life. I know it seems counterintuitive. I believe that humans do want to show you their best side it has nothing to do tr truly it it has nothing to do with whether they're manipulating me or i don't feel that i even have the capacity to be manipulated and i think that's i think that's where my confidence comes in about trusting people because they are going to show at least me they are going to show me what they want to show me and if someone i allow into my inner circle and i adore them and i love them and i allow them to be a part of my life it is very much about understanding that there's going to be a part of them they'll never show me Mm. Every single person has secrets. Every person has some sort of darkness within them. Every single person has also been touched by mental illness, whether it's within themselves or a partner or a mother, a father. They have been touched by mental illness. And the fact is, it's not about the darkness in them. It's about still holding on to their humanity and holding them accountable for their behavior. So opening myself up and opening up my heart to people is the only way to really give them a moment to love their own darkness and to love their own humanity. 
I like what you said there. I'm still hearing boundaries there. I'm not hearing you're allowing yeah. people to trample over you. You're, you're, you're accepting them for who they are, knowing, hey, we're, none of us are perfect, right? We all have flaws in us, and, and I'm going to love you for who you are, knowing that you have flaws, but there may need to be boundaries sometimes, right? I'm not going to let you just trample over me and abuse me. Yes, and love, loving someone does not mean that you're not going to hold them accountable for their behavior. And that is something I have learned along the way that Charlie Cullen was a good friend to me, whether he was only a good friend because he was pretending to be a good friend. It doesn't matter. The behavior that he showed me was, was sweet and kind and wonderful, but I will not shield myself from the darkness that is also in people. I am able to hold those that I love accountable. And Charlie deserves to be behind bars. He deserves to be punished for what has happened to him. And that means that he needs to serve that prison sentence. I still can love him. I can still adore him for what he showed me and yet separate that, that part of him to say that does not mean that he doesn't need to be put behind bars. Yeah. What has this experience been like for you? This, I mean, the, the meaning the, the movie gets produced now and I, I did a simple after watching the movie and reaching out to you, then I, I Google searched you and sweet mercy, you've been on a lot of interviews recently. I imagine, uh, I don't know, just tell us what this experience has been like for you. It's interesting because I have always had this little bit of, um, I have social anxiety. It's more about being in large groups of people. Uh, So I really thought that when I would start to speak in front of people, like my, my first appearance where I had a microphone in my hand and I'm sitting next to Jessica Chastain and Eddie Redmayne, and you would think in that moment it was just going to be a lot of, um, and I, I don't know. I, I just, something else took over in me and I realized nobody's dying. I'm used, I'm used to saving lives and I have had, I've had mothers hand me their children that were on the brink of death and not breathing and they trust me to save them. I, uh, you know, shooting victims, I've, I've pulled trauma victims out of vehicles, I, and I've saved lives, I've lost lives, uh, while I was trying to save them, and nobody's dying. And all of those people that came to see that movie were looking for a connection. And I do believe that so many people who are interested in true crime, they want to face their own fears. So I was able to have a voice to say, I faced my own fears and I did something that you think you might not be able to do. But the truth is, even in the face of my own mortality of losing literally everything, I was still able to make the right decision. And it just seemed so important to say those words and not to let Jessica speak for me. Jessica's playing a character of me. And she, because of her, has been able to give me a voice also so that I can apologize, repeatedly apologize to the families and to the victims and I wish I had seen it sooner. Yeah. I love the perspectives that you just communicated there. I think that is, is such a huge, uh, I think our mindset and our perspective has such an Im- huge impact on our joy in life and our health, getting into mental health and, and, and just putting things into perspective. No one's dying here. I'm, I'm, I'm about to be in a crowd 
I'm about to be have a, a camera in front of me. Take a breath. I'm okay. I thought you spoke really well. So whatever nerves you felt internally, you. outwardly, uh, you you looked calm as a cucumber. And and so, <laughs> but that's an important message for people to hear. You being vulnerable right now and 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 being honest about that, and people hearing that because if they watch you and go, wow, Amy Locker, and she was, I mean, she's a ICU nurse. She does these interviews now, and she is super calm. I, I can't do that. But when they hear people like you saying no, like huge anxiety building up within me going into that, and I had to talk myself through it, I think it gives people encouragement going, you know what? If Amy did it, maybe I can do it too. Maybe I yeah. can work through these anxieties I have. And they're all different for all of us, right? Some people post, yeah. post-COVID were just nervous to get out and go to the store. And I mean, that's a huge yeah. victory when people can 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 move out. What are ways that people can can follow what you have going on right now? Do you have forward-facing social media that you accept friend requests from? I would say uh, Instagram. I, you know, like right now, as you can see, I'm kind of in vacation mode. I am in the French Caribbean and uh, I, I travel a lot. And because I am not so afraid of this, um, this social media moment in my life, I have been sharing a lot more. So if people do want to follow along, they can see me on Instagram. I I do have a website, but I, you know, I'm not really managing it very well. And it is amythegoodnurse.com. So those are ways that you can reach out. If you message me, I will always get back to people. I answer absolutely every message and there have been thousands of messages I have unless I get like the weird dude that is just saying hi or I like your your eyes like no but if you are truly messaging me and you have any questions or you need a mentor as a nurse I am I am so willing to talk and there have been quite a few people that are in situations in hospitals where they're they're trying to change things and sometimes they just need a sounding board and I'm happy to do that for people. Well, I am super pumped to know that I passed the not the weird guy vibe. <laughs> You know, honestly, since my wife and I do this podcast together, sometimes I think it might be easier for her to be the one doing the communication with folks, uh, just, you know, because she's a girl, right? And, you know, girl, girl, you know, they can sit there and communicate. But thank you for doing whatever checking, even if you had to call Danny or Tim and and they did some kind of, you know, you know, check. Oh, they me. would too. They would. Vetting me that I actually do exist. I am actually a podcast host and a police That's officer right. in Washington State. And, you know, that is the thing that I was most... I was just the most disappointed that the the movie and the documentary, neither one of them really gives any indication of just how close Danny and Tim are to me and how we've stayed close throughout all of these years. And also how Charles Graber is still the only person who has been able to actually get any real information out of Charles Cullen. He's absolutely brilliant. And I just wish that there had been more of just how much we are a team. It's like we're the band and which is kind of annoying because I get to be like the lead singer. Like I did this much work and they did all the work. And I, you know, the lead singer always, you know, gets uh, gets more face than, uh, than anyone else. So, you know, I'm sorry that they ended up being the bass player and drummers, but they are really the ones that wrote the music. <laughs> you know, I don't remember where I heard this, and I was about to, to say this there, but uh, it may have been in one of the interviews. When you refer to them as Danny and Tim, I know that you guys are close. Because, yeah. because in all the investigations I've done, most of the time, I'm officer literal, detective literal, sergeant literal. People refer to me 
when, when people refer to me as, as with my first name, which I usually introduce myself with my first name, uh, I know that there's a more intimate connection there, right? That there's, so yeah. it may not have been in the documentary. Maybe it was one of the interviews you referred to them by their first name. And instantly I knew that there was a close connection there. And that's really natural when you go through a major case like this for you to have that, honestly, almost friendship, right? Where, where, you know, yeah. you know, you trusted me or, or, or a victim or a witness trusts me with doing my job tenaciously and so they're going to trust me by telling me what they know so that I can do my job. And, and I followed through and I earned their trust because I, I didn't, I did my job, right? I, I didn't sit there and do it halfway or something like that. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. All those links from the website to the Instagram account are going to be down in the show notes, folks. So if you haven't watched the movie, you need to pause the podcast right now. There's only like a couple few minutes of the outro left anyway. You need to go watch the movie and and then connect with Amy on Instagram because it is a remarkable story that that gives you hope, gives you courage. Yeah, I just love it. Amy Lochran, thank you so much for giving me your time today. Thank you so much. Yeah, have a great day. You too. Wow, ladies and gentlemen, what did you think of that interview with Amy Loughran? I, wow, it was, it was just a privilege. It was a privilege to have the opportunity to speak with her, to listen to her story and, and, and some of those pivotal moments in the story where she had to make a tough decision. I think that's something that can resonate with all of us, regardless of what we have going on, because we are all confronted with tough decisions from time to time. I can tell you an easy decision, folks jump on over to our website and pick up some gravity merchandise uh, that's one of the ways that jamie and i are creating an, an opportunity for you to grab some cool gravity stuff and for us to pay for some of the small costs of producing this podcast uh, it's down in the show notes or you can check it out at gravityct.com forward slash merchandise uh, we go through a store called skidoo and just a chance for you to pick up some stuff. Folks, we want to hear from you. How are we doing here on the podcast? There's different ways for you to communicate back to us. First and foremost, please follow us on whatever podcast platform you're consuming this on. That will cause the next episode to pop up when it goes live. You can also rate and review us if you're consuming this on Apple or Spotify. There's five stars waiting on the main page. We'd really appreciate a five-star rating if if we've earned five stars folks if we haven't earned five stars you keep your stars shoot me an email instead at chris at gravityct.com let us know how to make a better future marriage monday topics or guests for me to interview folks you hear me say this all the time we only get to live this life once right so let's go out and let's take care of the people in our tribe be kind to people take care god bless